back with you here this week, opening up God's Word. We're going to do that. We're going to explore the holy book, the book that, in, that indeed is not dead, but alive and active by and through a power and work of God, which He gives by grace, the Spirit of Christ Himself. And so we'll depend on God through the preaching of His Word to pour out His Spirit and to challenge and change and give grace to His people. I invite you to pray with me, and we'll dive into the text. Father, it's really good to be reminded through the moment of grace and also through that song that um, without you, nothing's possible, and you take delight when we pray prayers that sound like that. We need you. So be delighted to help us as we confess that we need you. We need you as we read your word to show us Jesus and to nourish us with grace. We need you. You're trustworthy. You bled and died on the tree for the forgiveness of our sin. How could we not trust you? Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would send your spirit to illuminate your word. We love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, uh, one of the, the seasons in my life that I'll, I'll never forget is the season of life between uh, graduating college and landing my first big boy job. I, uh, I thought that... Um, after graduating with a bachelor's degree, that finding a job would, would, would come easy, um, that everyone would want to hire me from my great state school. Um, but uh, to my surprise, I found out that life and things don't really work like that. I think I searched for a, a close to a year to find a, a job. And uh, one of the most daunting tasks of that season for me was, was crafting up the perfect resume. I thought to myself, how am I going to write a resume in, in such a way that I would be able to stand out from all the other candidates applying for the jobs that I'm applying to? And so my technique that, uh, or the, the method that I used was um, trying to list all my capabilities and competencies and abilities that I thought I would have and others wouldn't, all my experience, which indeed at this time was limited, all my skills, uh, because you know as well as I do that if you have an average resume, you're doomed. And if you don't stand out as something special or qualified, you can almost guarantee that you're not going to get the job. I've been uh, thinking about how this idea um, applies to life in general, how it applies in regard to the way that we're tempted to relate to others and maybe even sometimes to God. Oftentimes, in, in, in light of this idea of being chosen and or accepted slash used, what usually happens is that personal weakness in our life in person is considered to be a liability. And imperfection and or not being something great puts us at risk of not being used or wanted. And so instead of and letting, letting these things be known, what we tend to typically do as people in the context of community is put on the front of strength and portray as much perfection as we can. Number one... Um, it's sad because we all know that no one's perfect and it's actually really good to be known and vulnerable. It's healthy for us as people. And number two, it's dangerous because if we're not careful, this idea can creep into our theology and go on to influence the way we think about God and how our relationship with him works. In other words, if we're not careful, we can adopt the world's uh, view of weakness and think that in order for God to want, use, or accept us, that our resume has to be good enough for him. 
Oftentimes we're tempted to give into this false idea and think that God only uses the gifted and the talented and that those who um, are not spiritual giants or who lack the typical skill sets that tend to make impact in his kingdom are overlooked and or undervalued slash incapable. But this morning I am delighted to remind you that this is the furthest thing that is true about God and the good news that is found in the gospel. If you take time to read the Bible, what you'll actually see is that God being the strong and mighty God who needs nothing is actually not looking for the gifted, the talented, the competent, capable, or strong. He's not looking for the man, woman, or person who stands in front of him and says, Lord, look how great I am, how I can perform for you. Now, therefore, accept me. But rather, he's looking for the one who says, Lord, I can't do anything without you. My sin and my weakness has rendered me helpless. Would you, in light of me, save and have mercy? There's one preacher I love to listen to. His name is John Piper. And John, about this topic, said this. The difference between Uncle Sam and Jesus Christ is that Uncle Sam won't enlist you unless you are healthy. And Jesus won't enlist you unless you're sick. What is God looking for in the world? Assistance? No. The gospel is not a help wanted ad. It is a help available ad. God is not looking for people to work for him, but people who would let him work mightily in and through them. The good news of the gospel I'd like to show us this morning is that God is not looking for the strong or perfect, but rather he is looking for and desires to use indeed the weak so that by grace when things happen that are great and his mercy is extended and bearing fruit, that person would not only know who did it, but then the Lord Jesus Christ himself would indeed be worshipped for who he is and what alone he has done. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open. We're going to be in the book of Exodus this morning, chapter 4, examining verses 1 through 17. And if you're following along, taking notes, you'll see there on the screens that I've titled this sermon, God glories in using the weak. Three things I'd like to show you about God's glory in using the weak. Number one, I'd like to show you from this text, God's calling and our doubt. Number two, I'd like to show you from this text, God's calling and our excuses. And lastly, I'd like to show you God's calling and God's grace. His calling our doubt, his calling our excuses, his calling his grace. We're going to begin our time together by reading the, the story up front. It's a sizable text, but this is the most important part of the sermon indeed. The, the reading aloud of the scriptures will invite you to read with me. Then Moses answered the Lord, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to Moses, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. 
So he put his hand back inside the cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Sorry, there you go. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, that they may believe the later sign. If they will not believe even the two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But Moses said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart, and you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be your mouth and with your mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him, and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do these signs. My brothers and sisters, this is God's word. We're humbled to read it aloud together. Right now we're moving to point one, and I'd like to show you God's call and some of the doubts. We, um, we have been journeying through this, um, the beginning chapters of, of Exodus for the past few weeks now as a church. And uh, what we have seen specifically in the last two weeks together is, is this one figure, Moses, up on Mount Sinai, having this supernatural experience in conversation with God. Moses, for the very first time, is beholding God's glory as he stares at the burning bush. And uh, within this great moment that uh, the Lord um, was speaking to him, he went on to tell Moses not only who he was, but what was his plan for his life in light of this one event. If you remember in verse 10, chapter 3, God said this. This was the task. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. It's a, it's a pretty monumental task for such a man as this. And then in verse 13, if you remember, Moses basically responded, turned to God and said this, who am I that I should go? In layman terms, what, what Moses was saying to God is, you got the wrong man. We'll see, elaborate upon all the excuses that Moses had to the Lord in the second point. But basically, for the whole rest of chapter 3, after Moses' doubt here, what God did, in light of his doubt, was seek to assure him of his sovereign hand and promise. He basically, in chapter 3, told uh, Moses over and over again not to worry because the Lord himself was indeed going to act on his behalf. Verse 17, God said, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. Verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. Verse 21, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. In other words, as Moses is here standing before God and still doubting, 
What we see is that the Lord, by and through grace, sought to assure him of his great might and strength. Now, I want us to notice something as we journey on into this fourth chapter, which is the fact that Moses, even though he has heard all of these promises spoken to him concerning God's power, still has yet to change. In other words, if you look at verse 1, he's still doubting. Moses responds to God and says, But behold, these people, Israel, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. Moses doesn't know what he's talking about. He's not God. He can't predict the future. He's speaking like the one he's speaking to. But what has happened to him in light of God's sovereign promises is that he, in his mind and in his heart, he has convinced himself to believe the worst. Moses here in this text is a pessimist. The brokenness of life has affected Moses in such a way that even in light of all of God's hope and promises for him, with personal skepticism, he turns away and says, that can't be true for me. Think about this picture here. Moses is literally standing in front of God at the burning bush, literally, audibly, hearing his voice spoken to him. This is not like that silent inner voice. This is a, this is a real voice, a, a burning fire in the bush, and still, for this one man, it's not enough. And consider God, how, how gracious he is here to reveal his character, and how gracious he is here to deal with Moses in this. In verses 2 through 7, what God basically does in light of his doubt is give Moses more and more assurance by performing miracles for him. First miracle, God says, take your staff, throw it to the ground. It turns into a snake. And then he says, pick it up. And the, staff turns, the, sta- the snake turns back into the staff again. That's pretty crazy. And then to help him even further, he says, take your hand, your healthy hand, put it into your cloak. He takes it out. It's white. It's diseased. It's white as snow. It's leprous. And he says, put it back in, take it out, and there it's healed again. So God is performing miracles, first-handed experiential miracles for Moses. And if that's not enough, he says in the text, if they don't believe you, I'm going to perform a miracle, which indeed they would all submit to. So that, blood, that water turned into blood would seal the deal. just want to stop for a moment to um, talk about the dilemma of this scene happening here as we relate to this. Here's the dilemma. It's that even after God has proven himself over and over to Moses and deserves here from this text to be embraced and believed in and hoped in, in the face of the seemingly impossible situation for Moses' life, Moses struggles to believe. God here is talking to Moses, who is the new convert, the one who's just had moments of experience with him. And he tells this man to enter into the most powerful nation of the world, speak to the world's most powerful leader on behalf of God and to thousands of people and say to Pharaoh, the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh has sent me to you. Uh, P.S. The name of God, Yahweh, would have meant nothing to Pharaoh during this moment of time. Moses here is commissioned to enter into a pagan land, proclaim God's name, and to trust in and through that that one proclamation that things would happen, that a nation would submit and a people, because of this one name proclaimed, would listen and follow him. 
It sounds really good as Bible readers, but if we relate as human beings to Moses here in this text, as fallen people and limited creatures, you know as well as I do, if this were spoken to us, this would be an impossible situation. Moses here is rationalizing the situation. It's the very thing that you and I tend to typically do when, humanly speaking, life gets hard to rationalize it with our fallen mind and heart. We forget the one who burns in the bush in the form of a fire and yet is not dependent on the bush for its energy source to burn. God is not dependent on anyone or anything to make things possible but himself. Yet somehow, we as fallen creatures and people, men and women of faith, even in our lives, look at our life situations and put God in the box. We, we, we don't want to, but the fallen condition factor is we consider the all-knowing, sovereign, all-powerful one, and we limit his work and ability to what we can imagine him doing for us, getting us out of the situation. And this happens over and over to us, even as you and I has personally encountered the risen Christ and been filled with his spirit. Even after our lives have been changed by God, we, we look at our lives and think that he can't do it. AKA, you and I as fallen creatures called to faith still struggle with doubt. And I'll name it. It's good to be named. It's It's sin. And uh, oftentimes in um, religious contexts, this message concerning doubt in the light, in light of the man or woman of faith who has it is just get rid of it. It's, um, hey, if you're doubting, you're not allowed to have it. Get that out of here. But I want to remind you of the message of the gospel as it concerns God and our doubt. What is it? It's that the Lord, as he sees us struggling with doubt to believe in him, is committed to bear with us as we struggle to believe. That God sees you in all of your skepticism and pessimism concerning your life and is ready to prove himself over and over and over to you until you get it. Over and over and over again in this chapter at the burning bush. This is what God is doing. And I know some of you are really good scholars of the text. You might be looking at verse 14 and say, well, James, God finally gets angry with Moses here. He indeed does get angry with Moses here. But did you notice that even in his anger, how he gives to Moses grace, he sends to him a helper who would speak on his behalf? That's a gift. This is the Lord God. He is ready, able, eager to extend aid and help as we struggle with skepticism and doubt in our life. <laughs> this is the character of the Christian God, my friends. I have this Life on Life discipleship group here that um, consists of a bunch of guys at this church. And uh, we did some homework this week. And in one of our homework assignments, um, this was the question. The question said this, imagine Jesus speaking to you personally the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, giving to you this great task, describe your feelings and emotions. Not what you think, what you feel, and what are your emotions. And here's what I said. If Jesus would come to me personally and give me the Great Commission, I would feel excited but nervous. 
I would feel desirous but doubtful. Hopeful, but honestly, also, I would find it hard to believe that such a great thing could actually be possible through me. Moses here was called to be the the trustee of God's given word to um, be the bearer of the divine name so that God's great name would spread and fill the earth. And this, my brothers and sisters, is the exact missional responsibility and mark of the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It is in and through this story here that we were reminded of the method that God uses in the context of his redemptive plan to save and reach the world. What is God's method? What is his plan to do it? His people. To go out to the nations and proclaim the gospel and to live holy life so the nations would encounter the risen Christ. Matthew chapter 28 The Great Commission, Jesus says to us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Indeed, this is an impossible task. What keeps you and I from embracing this mission and seeking to live our lives, to reach the lost? It's right here. It's doubt. Would God actually do what he promises to do in and through you. Can he actually fix your impossible situation? For your good and his glory, this is his will. We all struggle to believe hopeful things concerning our lives because of the fruit of fallen condition. But God is eager to give you grace so that you would indeed become hopeful in the God of the impossible. Matthew chapter 8, do you remember um, how Jesus called his disciples men of little faith? He said that about them. Luke chapter 4, Christ said that his disciples were foolish men, slow of heart to believe. Oftentimes, throughout the gospels, the disciples were rebuked for their hardness of heart and their unbelief. And yet over and over and over again, what we see is the person of Jesus bearing with them to show his grace and prove his power. After Jesus appeared from the resurrection in bodily form, do you remember what happened with Thomas? Thomas says, I won't believe that it is him unless he lets me take my physical finger and stick it through his hands or touch his side. And Jesus appears in the face of his doubting disciple, bodily, risenly, his face was actually there. And what did he do? Thomas, here's my hands. Put your fingers through. Here's my side. Touch it. It's me. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And I, as you struggle in your unbelief, am gracious to deal with you. This is... The gospel. I just want to let you know that Satan wants you to become a pessimistic person. He wants you to be a pessimist. He wants you to live this life without hope. He wants to strip you of joy and hope in God's promises and will for you. 
Satan wants to do anything he can to make you to believe that God is not gracious or willing to solve your problems. But I want to remind you, my brothers and sisters, of the faithfulness of God displayed for you in a cross. Where God's love and faithfulness were shown as not only he died for sin, but also in bodily form rose Christ from the dead. God didn't make this world evil or fallen. Humanity incended. And the good news is that right now God is working out a plan of redemption and his plan is to use his people to do the work. How can we do the work if we're pessimists? If we don't believe in the power of God, this is not charismatic talk, this is gospel talk. The Lord wants to use you. How has God been gracious to you? How has he proven himself over and over that he is trustworthy and kind? How has he saved your family? How has he saved your life? How has he come through for you and saved your job? God is committed to coming through for you. Will you repent of your unbelief? Will you remember the faithful God? Will you say like the man in Mark chapter 8, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. Would you have mercy on me? God himself to the goodness of the gospel says, yes, I will. Amen. That was point number one, God's call in our doubt. I'd like to now move through the text and show you point number two, which is God's call and our excuses. We just looked at uh, the fallen condition factor of Moses' doubt. Now I want to show you something here that's actually really good about Moses. And that is here in this text, all by himself, without God, Moses knew that he was unqualified and unfit for the task given to him. Um, We read it before in chapter 3, how Moses, after hearing God's commission to him to go into Egypt and free his people, how he doubted and said to God, who am I that I should go? In verse 13, he then went on to say to God, what shall I say to them? In other words, I lack the necessary gifting, a.k.a. knowledge. Here in our chapter, verse 1, he says, they won't listen to me. In other words, I have not the required effectiveness. And in verse 10, he says to God, hey, God, don't you remember? I'm slow of speech and am not eloquent. So Moses, as he lists all of his imperfections and inabilities in light of the call, basically in self-centeredness and pride takes those things and we see his summary in verse 13, which is an unwillingness to go and a pleading before God to, to send someone else. One commentator named J.A. Motyer said this, <clears throat> if Moses lives in our memories as the towering leader of Israel in deliverance, it is well to remember where he started. Insecure, uncertain, unprepared, unworthy, and un-almost everything else. It is also well to remember how patiently the Lord took him at point after point and ministered reassurance. Guys, you gotta, you gotta think about who's here in our text. This is the once orphan boy who grew up to be a, a runaway murderer. Now saved by grace as a new convert as he has been Exposed to the grace of God. This is a man with a speech impediment, most likely, and or he maybe forgot the Hebrew language. One of the two. And now here, this 
man, this new Christian convert is, is, is chosen for salvation and called to do something great. Don't you love the gospel? This is who God chooses and uses. This is good news. And Moses, in all this good news, looks at himself and makes a list of excuses of, of why he's unfit for the job at hand. And this is where Moses is both right and wrong. Moses was right in the fact that he had no gifts for the call, but wrong in the fact that this is why God chose and called him to do the work that he was called to do. After being called by grace, Moses thought somehow that his future would be a result of his own ability. If he were living in 2023, he would be crushed by our cultural message to believe in yourself which is the same message that has went on to crush millions upon millions of people. Believe in yourself. Dig deep. Unlock your full potential. And if you just get to that spiritual place of digging deep enough and finding that inner strength, you'll have the power to do it. You can do anything you put your mind to. Do you know how prideful and self-centered that is? Why? Because at its core... What it's really saying is that you're self-made, you're autonomous, and are able to do and achieve things on your own without anyone or anything. And when you do them, you then can glory in your own ability to do them and worship yourself for doing them. You can't do anything without the grace or mercy of God. You can't take your next breath without God's grace. Your heart's about to beat five seconds from now, and that's up to God. When, when sickness or death strikes the family, then you awake to God's grace to do as he pleases and your inability to control or sustain your life. When your boss makes a decision about your work, you're awoken to the fact that you actually don't have control over your future. And here's how this world ide worldly idea affects Christians. It either goes one or two ways. We either let the world convince us that we are as people really indeed strong and that God is indeed looking to use the gifted or talented, or we can look at ourselves and all of our failures and inadequacies, navel gaze, say, woe is me. I can never be wanted or be used because of my fallen condition. And both of these things at their core are pride because they're merit-based self-assessments before God. It's prideful to say, woe is me. I can't do a thing as a Christian just as much as to say, I could do everything as a Christian. The gospel does indeed call us to believe in ourselves, but when a Christian believes in his or own, her, her own self, he or she is not believing in their own abilities or skills or competencies or autonomous existence, but rather by faith that, that Christian is throwing themselves at the feet of God and begging for mercy, knowing that no matter how small, how weak, how fallen, how sinful or broken they are, God, by and through the grace of Christ, will be merciful and use them. But this is indeed the way that he has set up for himself and his son to get the most glory. Moses was rightfully inadequate, but wrongfully doubting because his theology was all about himself. What you and I must know about our weaknesses, our limits, our incompetencies, our lack of control, and all the human conditions that are just not even a light of sin, but just being human is that they're all graces from God. Limit? Lack of control? This was pre-fall. 
We were never made to be God. God was made to exist to be God. And then when we embrace our limitation and our lack of control and our ability to do it, then he alone can be the one who exists to be. So I'll take the person, the new Christian, who knows nothing about the faith besides the fact that Jesus died for their sin any day over the seminary graduate who's puffed up in pride and all their gifts of knowing the word and theology, who then in all of those things looks to themselves and their own companies and says, I got this ministry, I can do it. Did you know that if you're a crazy great vocalist singing or instrumentalist worshiping, that you can sing to your, your voice gives out or your play to your fingers bleed and without the Holy Spirit you play or sing in vain? Did you know that? Did you know that, it, that you can have ex-ministry competencies and or experience and lead Bible studies and community groups and yet still do it in vain if not from the Holy Spirit of God? Did you know that you can be a successful business owner and or climb the ranks at work and slap the, the term, God is great, he did this for me, but not really mean it? And God, Christ himself, could look at all of your, your skills and achievements and say, I never knew you. Woe to you who think that you're strong. Your greatest problem is that you're strong. You have forgotten that the power of Christ is made perfect in weakness. And to the weak person, let me just say, what you need to know about your weakness is that self-distrust is good, but it's only good insofar as much as it leads to trust in the power and will of God. Otherwise, if it doesn't lead to this, it's going to result in spiritual paralysis. God is not looking for the man or woman who thinks they got this, nor is he looking for the man or woman who does nothing because they know they don't, but he's looking for the man or woman who's hungry and desperate for demonstrations of the power of God through the Spirit and the gospel. And do you want to know the key to unlocking this desperation? Here it is. I hope this, hope this rocks you coming to terms with just how deeply depraved of a human being you are. You are a sinner. And I am a sinner. And we deserve nothing. But God is gracious to give us life now and the hope of Jesus Christ. When you finally break over this one fact that your sin is inevitable... And it actually has truly hindered you spiritually speaking by yourself to deserve the blessings of God. Then you can behold the cross as the greatest treasure and gift. And I just remind you of the spiritual warfare that happens for you, Christian, who struggles with self-condemnation. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but this is what Satan wants you to believe. Your problem isn't Recognizing your sin, your problem is letting your sin define you. 
So Satan comes to you and says, you're too sinful, you're too old, you're too young, you're not educated enough, your story's too messy, you're ineligible, you're too far off. But then here's the spiritual warfare with the gospel that you can engage in. You then, as I once heard a man or read a man write, can do this. You then can take Satan by the hand and lead him to a hill far away called Calvary and there point to the nail-pierced hands and the thorn-torn brow and the spear-pierced side of your Savior and show him the power of God displayed in the empty grave. Your Savior died for you. God didn't pick you because you were able. He picked you because you were unable and he desires in and through you to show mercy so you can go on to do great things to the praise of his name. Hey, forsake your emotions and forsake your feelings and and your insecurities and by faith trust in God and watch him do something great. That was... The second point I'd like to finish in the last call, in the last one, which is his call and his grace. Well, um, after confessing my hesitancy, my own personal hesitancy in the great commission concerning God's will for me, in my homework this week that I read to you a moment ago, the question pretty much uh, foresaw that I would struggle or whoever was answering would struggle with doubt. And then the next question went on to ask this. In light of Jesus' call and mission over your life, what would you need to do it? And, um, and my answer, I actually just wrote down two, two words. That is power and presence. I would literally need God's power in me to work, and I would really long for Christ to come with me as I sought to be a light and reach the lost. And um, here in this text, these are the two things that Moses gets perfectly from God. Even after all his doubt and struggle, all his pride and insecurity, God by grace in verse 14 basically says, okay, Moses, I know you don't believe in yourself. I'm going to send to you a helper, your brother Aaron. He's going to speak for you. He's going to be a mouth for you. Make sure to bring your staff with you. Historically speaking, staffs during this time were symbols of divine authority. And finally, God says that he himself would be Moses' mouth. If you remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8, after Jesus rose and gave to the disciples the great commission, what he told them to do was wait for his power to come. And then in chapter 2, as they were waiting, the text says that a mighty sound from heaven like rushing wind filled the room and the believers in Jesus Christ were filled by and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And from that very moment, the church was born and went out to reach the nations. In, 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 in uh, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus told his disciples that things would come in their life that would be really, really hard for them. And the disciples, in light of this uh, prophecy, said, well, what are we going to do? Or what are we going to stay when we stand before people and councils on behalf of your name? And Jesus said, don't worry. The Holy Spirit's going to speak for you. In chapter 9, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit's going to be your helper. He's going to be your counselor. He's going to be your comfort. And he's going to be your guide. God here in this text did not send Moses without help or aid for this mission. And my brothers and sisters, as we consider our lives and callings of godliness and this redemptive story, we get these things as well. The good news that comes from Jesus' resurrection in light of this mission 
is that he has sent to us the Holy Spirit who not only comes with us, but also is promised to never leave us or forsake us. By and through Jesus Christ, God himself comes to personally and literally dwell in our hearts and we the least likely have been called to the most impossible thing so that when the spirit works through us by the power of Christ, Christ himself is glorified. God the Father is pleased to exalt Christ. I just want you to know as I close this sermon that the Lord wants to use you to affect your spouse. I just want you to know that the Lord wants to use you to affect your children. I just want you to know that the Lord wants to use you to affect your workplace and your neighborhood and this church. The Lord wants to use you so he can show his power. He's looking for the weak, humble one who would say, here I am, use me, though I have unclean lips. Nothing's impossible for God. I pray that you would see that in the death and resurrection, the empty tomb of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for calling us who are the least likely. Thank you for loving prostitutes and murderers and drunkards, people who really push against the grain of religiosity and by and through the power of the gospel, bringing them to their knees to cry out for mercy and you through mercy, choosing people like that to turn the world upside down. Use Parkview Church to turn the world upside down. That's such great news. I can't believe that you would want to do that. Help us to believe that, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you are gracious and patient with us as we doubt. Show us mercy and grace as we doubt, so our doubt would turn into belief. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.